Make your way to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Conventional wisdom in team sports has it that the key to a good offense is a good defense. And I think the same could be said about Christianity if taken in the right way. The cause of Christ is a predominantly offensive undertaking. Jesus promised that the defensive gates of hell cannot withstand the offensive penetration of the gospel. Yet Christianity must also employ an effective defensive strategy. Indeed, sometimes an effective defense of the faith is the best offense. We will see that worked out here in this chapter and into the next. The effective defense of the faith is the best offense. As followers of Christ, we recognize that we've not been bubble-wrapped by God to protect us from all trials and attacks and misunderstandings. Rather, from the day of the church's birth in Acts chapter 2, the Christian faith has been under constant attack. The faith is systematically assaulted by this world's philosophers, civil authorities, politicians, proponents of other religions, as well as on a popular level by spiteful and ignorant people. As followers of Jesus Christ, the Scriptures direct us in the face of these hostilities to stand for the defense of the faith. I would be tempted to be a Christian if for no other reason for the fact that we get the most persecution. Other religions are persecuted. Christianity is the most persecuted of all time and right now. In the face of this opposition, we need to understand that we are not simply to see ourselves as victims, but are to learn to stand for the defense of the faith. There certainly are times when believers should choose not to cast their pearls before swine, to withhold the defense of the faith as Jesus did when he stood silent before Herod Antipas, the murderer of John the Baptist, the murderer of this great man and a degenerate man himself. But our fundamental orientation as followers of Jesus is to stand in defense of the faith, to know that it's under attack, and to know how to answer that attack, and indeed to do so. Remember what Peter wrote as we just read it, 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Not in argumentative, boastful manner, but with gentle persuasiveness and respect for people made in God's image. But not playing the victim, not backing away, but in a persuasive manner making a defense of the faith and not waiting for people to simply ask the question. People, by the very way they live, are asking the question every day. What is the hope that is within you? We are to be prepared to make a defense of the faith. Jude 3 exhorts us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In Christian theology, the defense of the faith is a formal discipline known as Christian apologetics. Apologetics identifies the discipline of defending the Christian faith against false beliefs and false attacks in a logical and persuasive manner so as to display its truth and beauty to unbelievers and to strengthen the faith of believers as well. 
Well, none of us here, I don't believe, labors as a, an apologist for the Christian faith in a formal sense. Every one of us is, however, to develop the capacity and the courage to ably defend the faith against attack and misunderstanding. It's everywhere, in the common way that people live their lives, and in the specific statements of attack that are made on a formal level and on informal levels. We need to develop the capacity and the courage to defend the faith in this world. Indeed, our loyalty to Christ is measured to a significant degree by our willingness to defend His truth and saving power against idolatry and misunderstanding and false doctrine. We are to be standing in this world in defense of the faith of Christ. We see the Apostle Paul doing just that in chapter 24. Remembering back to chapters 22 and 23, he has been seized at the temple by the Jews who almost kill him on charges that he has defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile with him past the restricted area. Remember the Roman soldiers sweep in at that point and rescue slash arrest him, put him in the fortress there off the corner of the temple area, He is then brought before the Jewish Sanhedrin and divides the house with his statement that I believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees identifying with that message, the Sadducees greatly opposed to it. A confused Claudius Lysias dispatches hundreds of soldiers to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea when he hears that there is a plot against Paul's life. And so the group makes its way to the coast and then on up the coast to Caesarea, the capital, the provincial capital of Palestine, and ruled by the governor Felix. Claudius Lysias sends this letter to Felix that says, here's the deal with this man. We want him to be tried there where you are in Caesarea, the seat of power in Palestine. Paul will defend himself against false charges in this narrative. But I think we're going to miss something very crucial if we don't understand that in the defense of his, himself against false charges, Paul will also be defending the faith of Jesus Christ. He will primarily stand indeed as a witness for Christ and as a defender of the faith. So as we work our way through this section, let's not miss that point He will seek to gain his freedom in defending himself against false charges. But he will also, and more pointedly, defend the faith of Christ against all kinds of attack, both subtle, informal, and externally formal. In his confinement, God enables Paul to preach in the defense of the faith. We see Paul witnessing Christ before the governor Felix, beginning at verse 1 of 24. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So they're in Herod's praetorium, this grand palace, before Felix. Ananias, the corrupt high priest of Israel, has come down now from Jerusalem to this coastal city. And Tertullus will represent the prosecution, the case against Paul. I think there's indications he was probably a Gentile and undoubtedly very gifted. As was the custom of the day, he starts his speech with a barrage of flattery. 
Verse 2, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, Since through you, Felix, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. That was a bucket full of lies. That's all that was. But not uncommon fare for opening arguments in a Roman trial. Felix was ruthless. He was cruel. A ruler whose realm was in great turmoil. There was no peace. In large part because of his boneheaded lack of diplomacy as he crushed one Jewish insurrection after another with utterly no tact at all. They were not enjoying peace, they were not enjoying his rule, and they probably were not very happy to stand before him here. The realm continuing to boil over in hostilities directly against Felix. But they have an agenda, and so they flatter him to prepare him to hear their prosecution of Paul. Verse 4, but to, but to detain you no further... I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague. He's a disease. One who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. You're a great judge, you'll find that he stands guilty on these charges. Verse 7, you might notice, is missing in our ESV, apparently added by a scribe and thus left out of the ESV. All it does is just add some historical background, which we already have. What is important here is to see the charges described in verse 3. They're serious charges. Verse 5, rather, and verse 6. They're very serious charges. Verse 6 Because the desecration of the temple is a capital offense. And they're not playing games here. He has desecrated the temple. He deserves to die according to our law as Jews. The second is that he is stirring up insurrection against Rome all over the empire. And that is a capital crime against the empire. So Paul is is a dangerous cancer in the empire, his accusers assert. And he must be eliminated. And the Jews who are with Tertullus, again an indication that he may be a Gentile, the Jews also joined in the charge affirming that all these things were so. Ananias the high priest, those officials with him are saying, this is exactly right. As this man has put it, so it is. This man is a curse. He's a disease. He needs to be eliminated. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, we now look at his defense. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over the nation, I cheerfully make my defense. If we were sitting there listening, I think we might be trying to stifle a snicker right about that point. Paul is not going to lie, but he's, he's really grasping at straws here to find something that he can do to commend Felix. And all he can come up with is, you've been around here a long time. I'm really glad about that. I'm not dealing with a novice. I'm dealing with somebody who has some sense of the political landscape and the religious landscape. Paul is pleased to make his defense then before this governor. 
He makes his defense. Note the word. It is a key word, I believe, in this narrative at the end of verse 10. I make my defense. The Greek word from the root apologia, the answer or defense. It was a word commonly used in this setting of one who would defend themselves. He's making a defense, but again, Paul, I don't think he has it in his DNA anywhere to defend himself and not thereby to defend the glory of God. And so as he defends himself, as he gives his apologia, he is giving his answer, his defense of who Christ is. For a faithful believer like Paul, the witness will point to Christ. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they, are, what they now bring up against me. Paul avoids discussion of the troubling responses to his evangelistic efforts in the rest of the Roman world. That really ultimately doesn't matter to Felix. His jurisdiction is here in Palestine, and Paul keeps his thoughts there. Undoubtedly, Felix would have been troubled if he had known the uprisings that took place against Paul, but that's not at issue here. The charges of insurrection, Paul argues, are utterly unfounded. He had only been in Jerusalem a few days, not enough time to stir up an insurrection by any means, and when he was there, he stirred up absolutely nothing. There's no one that can support these charges against him. What is at issue then in Paul's mind? It is here that Paul steers the discussion to center on faith, which is really what it's all about. It's not about breaking the laws of Rome. It's not violating the laws of Israel. I've not done that. But here is what is at issue. I have been charged, and undoubtedly the ears perk up at this very place when he says, but I have a confession to make. I confess this, verse 14, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul's defense, we see the word confession here, verse 10. It's fundamentally a confession of how he lives and what he believes. God is entirely at issue. Although in fundamental disagreement with Ananias and the Jews, Paul had a clear conscience because he was following God's way of salvation revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. He was following the prophesied Messiah who was leading a new exodus from the bondage of sin. And so everything that he says and believes is connected to the Hebrew Scriptures. He has the same hope as these people do. He worships the same God. He believes in the same Bible as his accusers. And like them, at least like the Pharisees, some apparently with them there, he rejoices in the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, we don't have time to plow on this very long at all. But here is Paul standing before this pagan king and proclaiming resurrection. He doesn't back down. He doesn't apologize. He just preaches the truth of the resurrection. 
Verse 17, now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, probably a reference to that gift that he collected from the Gentile churches and then brought to the believers in Jerusalem. And while I was doing this, verse 18, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation should they have anything against me. Kind of breaks off his thought there, but far from stirring up an insurrection, Paul says, I entered the temple courts ritually purified. You remember the story. Ritually purified. In fact, there was not a single witness present in that courtroom who could bear witness against Paul in in, in regard to the supposed desecration of the temple. And that was really a breach of Roman law. You were not to bring accusations against an individual with no witnesses. If the witnesses don't show, there's going to be trouble at the hand of the judge. We miss all of that. Felix misses all of that. But he says, there is utterly nothing to it. In fact, there's no one here to witness against me that I actually brought a Gentile into the restricted zone. I didn't. And there's no witnesses here. But Governor Felix... Let me bring to your attention what the issue really is. And these who are here can bear witness to the facts of what I say. Or else, he says, verse 20, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, when I stood before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I mean, ask them, Felix. They will tell you. This is what I said, and it divided the house. But you see again where Paul is bringing the Roman official to understand this is a matter of doctrine. This is a matter of the teaching of Christianity which believes itself to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm right in line with all of the people of Abraham. That's what this is about. Ask them what I said. This is the mischief between us. It is a matter of doctrine. And so at this particular place, his defense ends before Felix But we note then, beginning at verse 22, as Paul has defended himself, that Paul continues efforts in the defense of the gospel before Felix. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture. I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down with one of these people and say, tell me about this. This is an amazing story. But think through, it's very succinct. Think through what Paul is saying. I should say, think through what Luke is writing and what Paul was doing there at the palace of Herod as he relates to Felix. Verse 22, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So Felix diffuses the situation puts Paul back in prison in his house, in Felix's house, under guard, allowing the prisoner's friends to flow in and out. That would have been appropriate under Roman law because he was not convicted of any crime. The visitors 
Undoubtedly Luke, undoubtedly the mission team. Luke has two years, he doesn't know it, but he's got two years now to work on Luke and Acts and to do interviews with people such as Philip the Evangelist who lives right here in Caesarea, who probably visited Paul as well. Perhaps his daughters came along, who knows, his four prophesying daughters. But there's people coming in and out in to see Paul. But what I'd like us to do to make sense of what follows here, so Felix has sort of put the whole thing to rest for a while, going to diffuse the situation. But let's move from the prison, from the dungeon, upstairs to the big house where the big family lives. What's going on up there? In the prison is this prisoner Paul, who undoubtedly is writing reading, seeking God, ministering to people, proclaiming the message, building up the church of Christ, waiting for his next chance to defend the faith. What's going on upstairs? A whole nother scene. Felix was living in this magnificent palace on the sea. He had been born a slave. And through intrigue and manipulation and just some of the, what the world would call dumb luck, he finds himself living in about the best digs anywhere in Palestine. He had two wives, fill in the blanks. But two wives, when he first turned a lustful eye upon a ravishingly beautiful teenager by the name of Drusilla. Now, Drusilla was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I, that godless quasi-Jewish king of Palestine who killed James in Acts chapter 12. So she has a godless father, a man who was in it for the greed and the power. And she learned well from her daddy. Drusilla was unhappily married to a king of an insignificant domain in Syria. She was married to him as a teenager, and her beauty was famous. But she craved something far more than this unhappy marriage, even at her young age, and craved fame and power. Felix became infatuated with Drusilla's body as she became enamored with his ruthless power. His lust and her ambitious greed combined and were welded together by the seductive counsel of a magician from Cyprus by the name of Atamus, who convinced Drusilla to leave her husband for Felix. So Drusilla became Felix's third wife. She is now only about 20 years of age. And living with Felix in Herod's palace on the sea in Caesarea, she has all the power, the prestige, the wealth, the ease of living, and this illicit relationship. One form of entertainment that was available to them. I suppose if it was this day, they would have a theater constructed into the palace somewhere, and uh, Felix would go and tune in and turn his brain off, and that would be the end of it. But in this day, you had to do some other things for entertainment. And one of the things that they would do is to call up the most interesting prisoner and interview this prisoner. That's precisely what they do. In fact, there's a very interesting prisoner in our dungeon right now by the name of Paul. He's a very learned man. And with some Jewish background, Drusilla is even believed to be by some the one who really instigates this setting. It's very interesting. She never is mentioned again wanting to have anything to do with the Apostle Paul. 
but probably for nothing more than entertainment, as well as some other political motivations we'll look at in a moment, they call him up. Let's talk to the man. Verse 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now think of this, Drusilla, this Jewess, Paul preaches to her Jesus as Messiah. You can fill in the blanks of how he might have done that. Using the Hebrew Scriptures to say this Jesus of Nazareth is the prophesied Messiah of Israel. But his message that flows from Christ, some of the trajectories that he traces out from Jesus are defined in verse 25. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, and coming judgment. Let's just stop for a moment. Again, we don't have time and we don't know precisely what Paul preached, but righteousness, what might it have been? He certainly speaks here of the righteous standard of God to which we are held accountable, and thus ultimately our only hope is not in our own righteousness as we fall infinitely short of God's standard, but in the righteousness that is a gift from God. He preaches this message. What does this have to do with a Roman governor? It has everything to do with him. It's the truth. And he stands for the defense of the faith. He preaches self-control. Think on that for a while. Self-control over greed and lust and the desire for power and influence and prestige. The self-control that comes only from the Spirit of God. That had to be a very uncomfortable message. For Felix and Drusilla. And then he preaches of the coming judgment. All are accountable before Christ in eternity. Again, you see, Paul is not here defending himself now, but defending the way of salvation in Christ against the immorality and the falsehood that Felix and Drusilla are, are embracing. What is the falsehood? It's all about money. It's all about prestige. It's all about importance. It's all about physical appetite and lust. This is what gives meaning and purpose to life. And Paul defends the truth that you people are lost and blind. It's about the glories of Jesus Christ. He preaches this message. And someday, Felix and Drusilla, we will all stand before this living Savior in eternity, who will stand as our judge. Yes, I stand before you. You are my judges. But we will all stand before the living Christ in His time as the judge of the universe. How does Felix respond? Verse 25, to this message, he was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. Under the faithful witness of Paul, Felix learned that he was a sinner and he feared. There was conviction that came from the message that was preached. Felix and Drusilla were in power, but Paul spoke of a power that shook them to the core. We see Paul's courage here simply to speak the truth. If the message that we proclaim is not good news in Jesus Christ, then it is not the Gospel. It's good news. But if the good news that we proclaim never brings conviction or fear or a sense of sin, that's not the good news either. 
That's a feel-good message that's not truly grounded in the revelation of God. Paul preached a message straight up that we are sinners who will stand before the throne of Christ for judgment. We better stand clothed in His righteousness. As C.H. Spurgeon put it once, we ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. We ought never to fear those who are defending the wrong side. For since God is not with them, their wisdom is folly. It might present itself in some sense as a logical system. But any logic that is not rooted in the person of Jesus Christ is pure folly. Don't fear. Think of Paul standing there before this governor and proclaiming the doctrines of Scripture without fear. Christian, we need never fear. The truth is on our side when we proclaim Christ. But I wonder if I speak to anyone that does not recognize that you are a sinner, please understand that you have violated also the law of God. It's not just about Felix and Drusilla, but I would imagine as I talk about their life and the things that mattered to them, you would resonate with some of those ideas. And beyond that, going much farther, we realize that in innumerable ways, we violate the law of God. This is the danger as we come here. I pray that you would not sense that, that I have sinned, I know that I sin, I know that I violate God's law, and walk from this place with the thought that you'll just figure it out with God someday when you get to heaven. Do you recognize that you will someday stand before God in judgment to give account for your sin? What Felix needed to grasp was not simply the conviction, I'm in trouble as I stand before a perfectly holy God. What he needed to sense was that perfectly holy God provides salvation by grace through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Jesus to pay that penalty of sin and His resurrection power to give us life and unite us with Him in righteousness. How tragic to only fear and not see that fear be transformed into love and confidence in Christ. He feared and he said, Paul, go away for now till my conscience recovers from this assault. He brought him back to hear the message again, over and again, but he had other motivations, certainly. When I get opportunity, I will summon you, he says, verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Often, often, had Felix lived today, he may have never brought this prisoner into his presence, but living where he did in that situation, he is hearing the gospel over and again. How dangerous it is for someone separated from Christ to come into a church service like this and to hear week in and week out about righteousness, sin, and judgment and not to repent. 
Sinners who repeatedly hear the gospel are in no better standing before God because they've heard it. We must turn to it and embrace it and repent and trust. Yet beyond toying with the gospel, as we mentioned, Felix has the other motivation, the political motivation, and here the greed motivation, verse 26, of wanting money. The political motivation, verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So he's not in prison simply to hear him preach the gospel, but he wants to get a bribe from him, which was common in that day, and he wants to please the Jews so there'd be no uprising. Felix's ruthless ways finally caught up to him. He was recalled to Rome by Nero, and much of his failure hinged on his violent treatment of the Jews. So he apparently here wants to curry a little bit of last-minute favor before he has to face the music in Rome. And so against Roman law, which limited the incarceration of a non-convicted prisoner to two years, Paul is left in prison. And we see then his apology, his defense, now not before Felix, but before Festus. And we'll work through this fairly quickly. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men and the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. The Jews were desperate to rid the earth of Paul. They know they have no case against him. And so this plot, actually by the leaders of the nation, not just some um, unnamed individuals, but it shows how corruptible they are. It shows how desperate they are. They have no case. They know it. And so they're trying simply to murder Paul. But Festus here, read again, Esther, the king could not sleep. Who knows what steers the heart of the king? We do. The king of kings. He steers his heart. And I'm not going to go for that one. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. I don't know how wise Festus might have been there, but in the providence of God, he does not go that direction. Or Paul certainly would have died. We see Paul standing before Festus in Caesarea, beginning at verse 6 then. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. And when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Here they are again, the attack on this man of God, these false charges. But Paul argued in his defense. We see the, the idea again. In his defense, he argues, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. It's at this point that a really troubling development takes place. Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, there's his motivation, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? That's not good news. 
Paul is innocent of all charges. There has been no witness that has been produced to show anything else. Festus has heard Paul's argument. He's heard the charges against him. Everybody's here in Caesarea at the seat of power. What good can come from the transfer from Caesarea to Jerusalem? No one's going to learn anything new here. There's a growing realization in Paul's heart that Festus is being motivated by politics, and that doesn't end well for people like Paul. And so, verse 10, Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal. Why are we going to go to the Sanhedrin? This is where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. That's a rebuke. That is a tense statement. He's not appealing a decision that's been made, a lower court's decision appealed to a higher court. That's not what's happening here. But within the context of Roman law, what's happening is he is saying, I cannot get a fair trial here. And that's now clear just by your saying that we might be heading to Jerusalem for trial. A Roman citizen then had the ability to say, I appeal to Caesar. I appeal to a higher law, to a, to a higher authority, because I don't think justice will be served here. As a Roman citizen, he had that power, and he exercises it. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, "To Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go." It may be a bit embarrassing, but it certainly takes care of a problem. And so Festus allows Paul's appeal to go through. And this is indeed providence at work again. What did, what did the Lord say when he appeared to Paul in prison? You will stand before me in Rome. How does he get there? By Paul working his defense, thinking very carefully, planning here, and saying, I appeal to Caesar. I don't think he's saying, I appeal to Caesar because I, I want to get to Rome. He would love to go to Rome as a free man, just like you or I would. But in the situation, this is his only hope of even surviving. Not knowing this is how God intended to get him there. But he'll get there. He appeals to Caesar, and to Caesar he will go. We can't read this narrative without catching clearly that Christianity is a rational, defensible faith. Certainly Paul's case was rational and defensible, but Christianity itself, the doctrines of the faith in which we hold dear, are rational and defensible. That doesn't mean everyone will believe them, or that our reason alone can bring anyone to saving faith. But do you not face the situation as you're talking to a reasonable, rational person in front of you, that sort of inner thought, this is going to sound crazy. I am going to now tell this person who lives in the normal world with me, that I put my faith, my hope, and my trust, that my identity is bound up with a Jew who died 2,000 years ago. 
that ever thought ever cross your mind as you're sharing the faith? I don't think this is going to go over very well. This is going to sound very crazy. We know it's not crazy. We know that it's rational. In fact, as the Spirit of God has taught us and brought us into the truth, we realize there's no other possible way. But how did we get there? Was it because we were so smart? Because we happened to work through all of the issues? No, it's because there was a great work of a God who chooses His people and gives them saving grace to understand really no different than it was with us. When that truth came to us and there was that sense, this is the truth. So I think we need to proclaim the message of Christ with confidence. We will never reason someone into the kingdom, but we can stand in the confidence that the Spirit of God can convince their souls. What we need to do is proclaim the truth. That's what Paul did. Could have argued a lot of different things before Felix. He just, in Festus, he just continued to present the truth of Christ crucified and risen. And as we think of that, I don't think that the point here is for us then to really redouble our efforts and work really hard at being good apologists for the faith of Jesus Christ. I think the direction we need to go is to 1 Timothy 6 and verse 13 where it says of Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Any confession that we make of Christ, any defense of the faith, needs to lock into the greater defense of Jesus Christ who made clear in Luke chapter 22 before his accusers, his false accusers, who were attacking him like they were attacking Paul, he made clear in that place the Son of Man who entered into the presence of the Ancient of Days in Daniel, I am that man. This one who entered into the ancient presence of the Ancient of Days in the days of Daniel's vision, this one to whom is ascribed divine qualities such as eternality. I am that man. I am the Christ of the living God sent to this world to save. He offered the good confession. All we do is reflect like the moon reflects the light of the sun, this light of this truth in a dark world. Our witness, our confession will never be ideal, but it always locks into the greater confession of Jesus Christ who stood and proclaimed the truth in a needy world. We proclaim that same truth. And to bear witness to the truth of God in this fallen world, to contend for the glory of His saving purposes and the wonder of His name and testimony is a unique way to bring glory to our Lord. What does this world praise? What does this world defend? What does this world announce? Entertainers, teams, games, movies, food, vacations, lovers, money, many of the things that Felix and Drusilla enjoyed on the sea at Caesarea. We are called as God's people to come in and to defend the fact that this is folly. To think that any of the created things of this world could ever bring peace to our soul. That peace comes 
in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ alone. And when we speak that truth and defend that truth, we glorify the name of Christ. We'll never be sorry we did that when we stand before Him in eternity. Even if a few people here call us nuts. As Peter said to his readers, we need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. If you are a Christian, your life's greatest work is bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. To say that there is a life of hope and faith in Him, there is an eternity that is to be gained, and there is damnation to be eschewed. There's classmates around you, there are workmates around you, there are neighbors, there are relatives, there are children in our homes. There's the whole cause of missions. There are many, many avenues and venues in which this message must be proclaimed. There is everywhere misconception about Jesus Christ. Sometimes all that is needed is for people to hear a faithful defense of who He is and what He's done. They have conceptions in their mind about who He is, and we need to shed the light on the truth to defend Jesus. We're so quick to defend ourselves. How passionately do we defend His name and His reputation? We live in a world that thinks that Jesus is a good teacher to be left on the side and ignored, if not something much worse than that. That's not right. And by God's grace, may we lift up the life of Christ by standing in defense. We don't see here in Paul whining. It gets so tiring to hear whining Christians who think we're the victims. We see as a man who stands on his feet and says, here's the truth. It's a truth that's always been despised. There's such a need for believers to speak forth the light of the gospel in a dark world. There's a need for us to do that. And may we join with those who through the centuries in the mode of Jesus of Nazareth stand before this world to bear witness to the person and the work of Jesus without apology in our apology. And this makes sense only if there's one Lord. If there's multiple lords, we've got no business telling anybody what the truth is. But there's one Lord. And every soul that we meet will stand before Him. So we gather this night in our home groups. We give ourselves to this task of proclaiming the message of Christ as a church. Listen, Christian, you've got no reason to live apart from that. We could add many other reasons to live to the glory of God. We've got no reason to live if we say that we are no longer defenders of the lordship, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. May we move into this world with courage, with clarity, with ability. I'm reminded of two accounts that I hope will stir affections for this defense of the faith. John Chrysostom So many run-ins with Empress Eudoxia. She was a wicked woman, and John's preaching absolutely angered her time and time again. But she had the power. And as things began to tighten down, and John began to see, as they say, the handwriting on the wall, knowing that he was soon to be deposed, and that it would probably mean his death, indeed it did, 
he wrote these words. The waters are raging and the winds are blowing, but I have no fear, for I stand firmly upon a rock. What am I to fear? Is it death? Life to me means Christ and death is gain. Is it exile? The earth and everything it holds belongs to the Lord. He was going to be exiled from the great city of Constantinople. Send me wherever you want. The Lord is there too. Is it loss of property, he asks? I brought nothing into this world and I will bring nothing out of it. He had great opulence at his fingertips. Never accessed it, but he had it. Ah, it means nothing to me. I have only contempt for the world and its ways, and I scorn its honors. And he preached Christ, and he was killed. Hugh Latimer, the English reformer, preached before Henry VIII. Very fitting in the context of Felix and Drusilla. Henry VIII, an immoral man. And Hugh Latimer, preaching a message, offended the king. And so the king did what kings did in that situation. When you invite a preacher to come to your place and that preacher offends you, you offer another invitation for that preacher to come and apologize. And that's what he did. Sure that Latimer would think better of it. Latimer came that next Sunday, invited back for his apology. And he offered an apologia. He started his sermon this way, talking to not the king, but himself. He preached, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch of England, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed what thou speakest, that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present and to whom belongeth all thy ways, and is able to cast thy soul in hell? Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. Not safely, faithfully. What Latimer did at that point, I don't know if he had notes, but he got out his notes and he went to last week's sermon and he preached it again. Word for word, with greater zeal. When we are proclaiming the truth to people locked in darkness, we never need to apologize. We never need to fear. We have God on our side. May we run from this place and make the good confession with courage as Jesus our Lord did. Let's bow for prayer. Oh Father, how weak we are. How given to fear. 
how given to weakness and how given to self-centeredness that does not see the lost world around us. I pray, Father, that you would deepen and strengthen us for your glory and for your honor, that we might take to heart the challenge that we have, indeed the great and high calling that we have to be witnesses in defense of the gospel of Christ. I pray for anyone who's separated from Jesus and will at least where they are in this place today as we can perceive, stand before Christ in judgment. I ask, dear God, that you would melt such a heart. I pray that you would help such a person to see the good news, the grace and the mercy and the love that flow to those who trust that Jesus was judged in their place. Father, draw us to Yourself. And may the message of Jesus crucified and risen flow from our lips and our lives in a world that is lost in the darkness of sin, grasping at things that will never satisfy. Teach us to be light, salt in that world. Through Christ I pray. Amen.